You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 453 of this podcast. Today is August 15th, 2022, and today we're going to talk a little bit about pessimism defined and Martin Lloyd-Jones on political divisions among Christians. But first of all, let's just define what pessimism is, shall we? According to Wikipedia, pessimism is a negative mental attitude in which an undesirable outcome is anticipated from a given situation. Pessimists tend to focus on the negatives of life in general. A common question asked to test for pessimism is, is the glass half empty or half full? In this question, a pessimist is said to see the glass as half empty, while an optimist is said to see the glass as half full. Throughout history, the pessimist disposition has had effects on all major areas of thinking. Philosophical pessimism is the related idea that views the world in a strictly anti-optimistic fashion. This form of pessimism is not an emotional disposition as the term commonly connotes. Instead, it is a philosophy or worldview that assigns a negative value to life or existence. Philosophical pessimists commonly argue that the world contains an empirical prevalence of pains over pleasures, that life is ontologically or intrinsically adverse to living beings, and that existence is fundamentally meaningless or without purpose. Their responses to this condition, however, are widely varied and can be life-affirming. Now, first of all, why do I want to define pessimism for you? Well, it's very simple. Really, because we are talking about politics and how Christians relate to politics, I think it behooves us to recognize that some have a pessimistic view of what we should be about in the world, and it may not be that they got that pessimistic philosophy from the scriptures. It may be that they came to the scriptures with philosophical pessimism. They are pessimistic people. And when they read the scriptures, they read the scriptures with a pessimistic outlook and a pessimistic bias, and they're not necessarily catching it. Particularly if a tradition is built up around a kind of pessimistic view of what the scriptures have to say, and we are not studying the scriptures for ourselves, we are not going to God and asking him wisdom directly, but we are looking for an endless parade of intercessors between us and God. Besides Christ, Christ is not a sufficient intercessor for us. God's word is not a sufficient testimony for us. We may not catch that we are following in a tradition of pessimism that was set for us by someone who generations ago was being rather pessimistic in their outlook on the world, on ourselves, on life, on what we should be about. 
That's really the big idea for me defining pessimism from the outset. Now, to be very, very clear, I don't want to be a pessimist. Sometimes I can be downright pessimistic. I think it's more of a temperamental thing. And I think to some extent, I get in a little bit of a funk based on circumstances if a lot of things are going negative in a row, one after another after another, or if I'm around people who have a very pessimistic view, sometimes it can take its toll and I can start myself to be swayed over much to the point that I don't see any positives. And I think that's not a God-honoring outlook. And I don't think that we get that from the scriptures. I think that if we come to the scriptures with that and we're not being transformed by the renewing of our minds in light of God's word, that is not so good. And I speak from personal experience. I don't want to do that. And I don't want you to do it either. So I share this with you accordingly. Just so and equally in the opposite direction, I think an overly optimistic view of ourselves, of the world, of life is also unwise. If we come to the scriptures with an overly optimistic view, then we will gloss right over the corrections that are needful for us to heed. Even, yes, sometimes rebukes of the way that we have oriented our hearts and our minds and our souls and our bodies in opposition to what God says in his word is true and good. And so I don't think optimism follows any more than pessimism. I think in some sense, both lack wisdom because they want things to be simple in a way that is nothing to grapple with. And we should not prefer simplicity when it leads to error. We should want simple truths in the sense that the truth is understood so well that we can communicate it simply, but we should not prefer oversimplifications and mistake those for the truth. That's all I'm really trying to say as I define pessimism at the outset. I am not saying, as some reading the title, hearing the intro, might be wondering that Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pessimist or that anyone who agrees with Martin Lloyd-Jones is a pessimist. I am not saying that, but what I am saying is we should take care in the way that we might agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones on certain points that we are not coming from a position of having been taken captive by vain and human philosophy to a kind of fatalistic uh, unproductivity. God doesn't want us to be unproductive in our faith. He wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to be productive, to be complete as men of God, equipped for every good work. Jesus says at one point, let your light so shine before all men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. If we are overly pessimistic in our reading of that, we might totally miss that the implication, the insinuation, the unmistakable claim embedded in what Jesus says there is that God has made us for good works and we can do them and we ought to do them. One of the big dismissals, we are told to anticipate Christ saying, depart from me, I never knew you, with is you workers of lawlessness. In other words, some, and not just some, but many, 
are going to come to Christ on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Many are going to come to Christ and say, look at all these things that we did in your name. And Christ will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. And so we are not saved by works, lest any man should boast. We are saved by grace through faith. And yet we are saved for good works that God has prepared for us from eternity past. He wants us to be about good works. We are not saved by good works, but he has made us to do good works. And that is an important point that I want to draw your attention to with regards to this topic, which I am only just scratching the surface on. I have been writing and podcasting for seven years, but I still have a lot to learn. I am learning new things every day, every week, every month, every year. I want to share those things with you in a way that edifies you, in a way that builds you up, in a way that encourages you towards love and good deeds. I am trying to spur you on towards love and good deeds in this podcast. And so I would draw your attention to some quotes from Martin Lloyd-Jones some of which were part of the sermon at church yesterday morning. Mike Bonnell, one of the pastors at Summit View Community Church in Evans, Colorado, preached a sermon on the Beatitudes. And in particular, Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote an entire book comprised of his sermons preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And in the chapter dedicated to verse 10 of Matthew chapter 5, he has some things to say about what this passage does not mean in his view. And whether we agree with him, whether we disagree with him, whether we've given any thought to his position I think we can get a benefit from grappling with what he has to say. I, for one, may readily agree with him, depending on what he means, and I may, I, I may strenuously disagree uh, also, depending on what he means. But without further ado, I'd like to read for you a quote from page 112 from Studies in the Sermon on the Mount by Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is a collection of his sermons from preaching through the Sermon on the Mount without further ado. And I quote, There are Christian people who are being actively and bitterly persecuted in many countries at this very moment. And there may well be a strong case for saying that this may be the most important verse in your life and mine. There are so many indications that the church may indeed be facing that fiery trial of which the Apostle Peter writes and speaks. He was thinking primarily, of course, of one that was coming in his own day, but it may well be that we in this country, in apparent safety and ease, may know and experience something of the fiery trial and furnace of affliction and of persecution. Let us be clear then that we understand this verse and know exactly what it does say. To that end, let us start with a few negatives. It does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they are objectionable. It does not say, blessed are those who are having a hard time in their Christian life because they are being difficult. 
It does not say, blessed are those who are being persecuted as Christians because they are seriously lacking in wisdom and are really foolish and unwise in what they regard as being their testimony. It is not that. There is no need for one to elaborate this, but so often one has known Christian people who are suffering mild persecution entirely because of their own folly, because of something either in themselves or in what they are doing. But the promise does not apply to such people. It is for righteousness' sake. Let us be very clear about that. We can bring endless suffering upon ourselves. We can create difficulties for ourselves, which are quite unnecessary, because we have some rather foolish notion of witnessing and testifying, or because, in a spirit of self-righteousness, we really do call it down on our own heads. We are often so foolish in these matters. We are slow to realize the difference between prejudice and principle, and we are so slow to understand the difference between being offensive in a natural sense because of our particular makeup and temperament and causing offense because we are righteous. So what do we have here? Right? End quote, of course, naturally. What do we have here? We have Martin Lloyd-Jones starting by telling us what this verse does not mean. It does not mean that if you suffer because you're being, this is Gert's translation, a jerk, if you suffer because you're being a jerk, you can't say then you're suffering for righteousness sake. If you are suffering because you're being an idiot, you cannot say you're suffering for righteousness sake. That is not what this is talking about. Now, some may in the world, I would add, claim that you being a Christian and following Christ is the same thing as you being a jerk. And that's where this gets difficult. And I don't know to what extent a Welshman like Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching when he was preaching this decades and decades ago would quite fully comprehend how an American in the year 2022 has to reckon with Christians being dismissed as idiots and jerks just simply for saying, here's what God's word says, and that's what I believe. In some quarters, it has always been the case that for a Christian to believe what God's word says is true, makes them an idiot and a jerk in the world's eyes. So we have to be very careful that we're defining these things objectively, and we are not allowing the world to define these things. Because someone could, in our day, take this quote out of context and then use it as a lever against Christians who are actually being faithful to say, because you are being mocked, because you are being disparaged, because you are being driven away, because that's actually what persecution means, is to be driven away. It doesn't necessarily have to be shoving, pushing, beating, flogging, being arrested, having your property seized, being thrown in prison, being tortured. It doesn't necessarily have to mean those things or the threat of those things per se. But very often, it does involve those things because all of those things add up 
to a trying to drive away. So then the question is, what are we about that precipitates others trying to drive us away? That really is the crux of the matter, no pun intended. What are we about that others are trying to drive us away? And also, too, where this gets messy, and I think a Brit who knows his British history would have to admit this, where it gets messy is where in the history of Britain, of England, of Wales, of Scotland, of Ireland, you have centuries of conflict between Protestants and Catholics. You have centuries of conflict between Anglicans and Presbyterians and various kinds of Presbyterians and also nonconformists and also Puritans. You have conflict between those who disagreed about the Christian faith and took disagreements about the Christian faith and how to interpret God's word for various spheres of authority or various facets of life or Christian faith or the practice of the church. They took those disagreements and they used them as pretext for driving from the church, driving from public service, driving from government, driving from the universities, driving from public life entirely, those who disagreed with them. And given the fact that not all those who by turn wielded power in such a way that they could drive their competitors in the British Isles from those various spheres and sectors could not all be correct at the same time. For one thing, some of the rest of what Martin Lloyd-Jones has to say about politics makes a kind of sense, I think. And yet also at the same time, perhaps does not take into full account British history with regards to these things. Or if it does, it does not in the quotes I've selected. And I need to study further in order to know whether he accounted for these things that he seems to be having forgotten or overlooked in the places I've read him so far. But I look at this and I think to myself, based on some of the rest of what he has to say, with regards to Matthew 5.10, I either might readily agree or I might strenuously disagree. And I'll explain what I mean here. But first, who is, who was Martin Lloyd-Jones and why should you care? First of all, David Martin Lloyd-Jones was born 1899. He was a Welsh Protestant minister and medical doctor who was influential in the Calvinist wing of the British evangelical movement in the 20th century. For almost 30 years, he was the minister of Westminster Chapel in London. He married in 1927 a certain Bethan Phillips, and he passed away March 1st, 1981 in London, England. Born Cardiff, Wales, died London, England. Born 1899, died 
1981. Very influential minister. But he says another thing I'll quote for you, read for you here on page 113 of Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. We must also realize that it does not mean suffering persecution for religio-political reasons. Now, it is the simple truth to say that there were Christian people in Nazi Germany who were not only ready to practice and live the Christian faith, but who preached it in the open air and yet were not molested. But we know of certain others who were put into prisons and concentration camps, and we should be careful to see why this happened to them. And I think if you draw that distinction, you will find it was generally something political. I need not point out that I am not attempting to excuse Hitlerism, but I am trying to remind every Christian person of this vital distinction. If you and I begin to mix our religion and politics, then we must not be surprised if we meet persecution. But I suggest that it will not of necessity be persecution for righteousness' sake. This is something very distinct and particular, and one of the greatest dangers confronting us is that of not discriminating between these two things. There are Christian people in China and on the continent at the present time to whom this is the most acute problem of all. Are they standing for righteousness' sake or for a cause? After all, they have their political views and ideas, They are citizens of that particular country. I am not saying that a man should not stand for his political principles. I am simply reminding you that the promise attached to this beatitude does not apply to that. If you choose to suffer politically, go on and do so, but do not have a grudge against God if you find that this beatitude, this promise, is not verified in your life. The beatitude and the promise refer specifically to suffering for righteousness' sake. May God give us grace and wisdom and understanding to discriminate between our political prejudices, and spiritual principles. And to that, I would say, with respect to the good Reverend D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, yes and amen, and were you doing the same when you preached this sermon? I say that not to be disrespectful. I say that not to be rude, But I ask that honestly and earnestly, because what do we make of Daniel when his rivals in the Babylonian court talk the king into passing an edict, issuing an order to the entire kingdom that for 30 days, no one can pray to anyone except the king. And if they do, they will be thrown to the lions. What do we make of the fact that Daniel was serving in government and that his rivals in government were making this play in a political fashion? Would we say to Daniel when he was thrown to the lions for praying to God that he had it coming, he could go on and do so, but that he was not suffering for righteousness' sake, because religion and politics are entirely separate things, 
And if a Christian enters into politics, well then, he cannot anymore claim to be suffering for righteousness' sake. If one of God's people enters into politics, he can no longer be claiming to suffer for righteousness' sake. It really does beg the question, what is politics? And I don't see Martin Lloyd-Jones in skimming, admittedly, and I need further study to know what I'm talking about, but I'm just telling you what I'm not seeing. I'm not seeing him define what politics is. He just uses the word in passing and assumes that everyone agrees with his definition of politics. And I don't. In fact, I've been spending the past seven years arguing at great length, trying to explain that politics is just the business of the polis, the polis here being the city. The politics issue is that we are told, if Christians are told, as they often are, to stay out of politics, to stay out of the business of the city. And yet the question has to be asked, are not Christians to be concerned about the welfare of the city to which Yahweh their God has brought them in their exile? Was Jonah involved in politics when he preached repentance to Nineveh? Yes or no? When Lot came out to plead with the men of Sodom to not do this evil thing to the angels who had come to remove Lot and his family from Sodom because God was going to destroy it, was Lot not engaged in politics? When Daniel was serving in the king's court at Babylon, was he not engaged in politics? When Joseph was put in charge of preparing for seven years of famine in Egypt, was he not involved in politics? The simple answer in all of these is he was. So also with David becoming king. If David becomes king and therefore cannot be said to be suffering for righteousness sake, if he does the right thing and then others who are wicked hate him and try to destroy him accordingly, that is not good. And I can't agree with that. And I'm not saying that that is Martin Lloyd-Jones' position, but I am saying that many unscrupulous and uncareful people in our day might quote Martin Lloyd-Jones on these points as a kind of lever, much the same way many in our day are using the term Christian nationalism as a lever to drive Christian conscience and character from public life, i.e. to deprive the public of Christian virtue, to make private Christian convictions and Christian truth, Christian life and thought, to where you cannot live it in the open and you can't speak it in public, to the people around you, to the organizations, to the institutions in your midst, is to deprive the public of Christian virtue and Christian truth. And how does that square with Jeremiah 29? When we read, seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile, we are reading a call to be political because all politics is, is the business of the city, is the business of the polis. That's all it is. 
the godless engage in politics after their nature, according to what is in their hearts and their minds and their souls. But to say that the godless engage in politics in such and such a way, therefore, Christians are on their own. Whatever they suffer is on their own heads, be it. If they get involved in politics, it is not good. That is not right. That is not appropriate. We cannot read Augustine's City of God and come away with that conclusion. I read it. I cannot come away from it with that conclusion, that that is the proper historic Christian attitude and posture. I just can't. So it isn't to say that Martin Lloyd-Jones would disagree with me, but it is to say, depending on how quotes of him here might be leveraged by people in our day, I might either readily agree or I might strenuously object. And depending on how he meant these things, I either have to strenuously object or I can readily agree. But Martin Lloyd-Jones was not infallible. He was not inerrant. He had blind spots. He was a finite creature. And insofar as he might not have been studying these things diligently and yet weighing in on them anyways and giving his personal opinion, he should be regarded with respect and yet all the same sufficient due respect and not the kind of respect that we reserve only for God and God's word. Where he was stating his opinion, Martin Lloyd-Jones, by the grace of God, could be and was mistaken on some things, even if he has to be reckoned with in some of the particulars of what he had to say. Even where he's wrong, we do well to reckon with what he had to say. But I don't like reading what I read here as well in page 114 of Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. And I quote, There is much confusion on this very matter at the present time. Much talk which appears to be and is said to be Christian in its denunciation of certain things that are happening in the world is, I believe, nothing but the expression of political prejudices. My desire is that we might all be saved from this very serious and sad misinterpretation of Scripture, which may lead to such needless and unnecessary suffering. Another great danger in these days is that this pure Christian faith should be thought of by those who are outside in terms of certain political and social views. They are eternally distinct and have nothing to do with one another. Let me illustrate this. And here, as an aside, as a footnote, this is what I am not sure what to do with in Martin Lloyd-Jones especially. And I quote, The Christian faith as such, is not anti-communism. And I trust that none of us will be foolish enough and ignorant enough to allow the Roman Catholic Church or any other interest to delude and mislead us. As Christians, we are to be concerned for the souls of communists and their salvation in exactly the same way as we are concerned about all other people. And if once we give them the impression that Christianity is just anti-communism, We are ourselves shutting and barring the doors and almost preventing them from listening to our gospel message of salvation. Let us be very careful, Christian people, and take the words of Scripture as they are. Now, let me say this, end quote, by the way. Let me say this. I, Garrett, not Martin (laughs) Lloyd-Jones. 
to be entirely frank, and I mean no disrespect, I think this is a very naive thing to say, depending on what he meant by it. I think this is terribly naive and uninformed about the dangers of communism. And I think that if he was informed about the dangers of communism and yet said this anyways, and not more and not differently, right here, he was over-spiritualizing some things while at the same time missing the forest for the trees with other things that pertain very directly to the purity of Christian doctrine and Christian life and thought. My question for Martin Lloyd-Jones, regardless of how he meant this and whether he was clearer in other places or whether I am misunderstanding him, my question regardless is this. What do you do with Christians, so-called, who start trying to infuse the gospel with Marxism? What do you do with Christians who start trying to inject their communism into Christian teaching and yet claim to be Christians even as they are fundamentally undermining and perverting the truth of the scriptures? Martin Lloyd-Jones' concern here seems to be first and foremost with those who are not Christians, who make no claim to Christian faith, who actually are openly and avowedly communists, that we would not drive them further away from the kingdom by saying we are anti-communists as Christians. If we say that we are anti-communists as Christians, they might not listen to the gospel as shared by us with them. Therefore, we don't want to be anti-communists per se, strictly speaking, because non-Christians may not want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ if they are communists and they find out we are anti-communists. My question back would be, particularly in our particular context, what do we do when communists are convinced, in part because of other things that Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and not just because he said them, but because they were very much in the air over the past century with this desire for world peace at seemingly any cost, they believe that they are able to be entirely Christian and entirely communistic all at the same time, and that there is nothing incompatible about the two. Moreover, they question the Christianity of those who oppose communism in any way, shape, or form, or contradict it, or don't abide by it, as if to not be a communist is to not be a Christian. And what would Martin Lloyd-Jones have to say about that? He seems not to have anticipated it. Or, if it was already happening in his day, he seems not to have recognized it. Or, if he recognized it, he seems not to have treated it seriously enough over and against other concerns and priorities. And with that, I would have to disagree in the strongest possible terms, if in fact that is the explanation for why he said some of the things that he did about being anti-communist and a Christian. 
Another quote, not from Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, but actually from a sermon he preached on Romans chapter 1, as sent to me by my friend and pastor, Paul Pavlik. And I quote, Or are you troubled about the state of the church, the dwindling congregations, the plight of the world, the might of the world, the organization of the world, and all these things? Oh, I say, go back to the Old Testament and take hold of the comfort and consolation of the scriptures. Or are you troubled by something that has happened in the world today? Then put it in the context of the Old Testament. I was never worried for a second about a man like Hitler. It was enough for me to read the 37th Psalm. And there I read of a man like him spreading himself like a green bay tree, a sort of colossus striding the whole earth. But I read on and learned that a day came when a man wanted to go to see him and to speak with him, and he could not find him. He searched everywhere for him. He could not find any trace of him. He had vanished. Why? God had blown upon him. End quote. Now, that's very fine. That is very fine. And I don't mind that. But when Martin Lloyd-Jones says, let's put these things in the context of the Old Testament, and when his particular context that he's putting in the context of the Old Testament, our context extended on and allowed to develop a few decades more, is the ascendancy of communism in the world, the abolition of government under God and the rise of government as God in our day, putting these things in the context of the Old Testament would mean more than just reading Psalm 37. It must, in fact, mean reading the book of Judges, reading the books of Kings and of Chronicles and of Samuel. Putting these things in the context of the Old Testament would mean recognizing, as Ecclesiastes says, that there is a time for peace and there is a time for war. There is a time for embracing and there is a time to refrain from embracing. We cannot only read the 37th Psalm and then say that is enough for putting our situations, our questions in the context of the Old Testament. That will not do. That is not the whole counsel of God. It is part, but it is not the sum and the entirety. To say we were never worried about a man like Hitler for a second is very fine, good. Don't worry about him. But what are we doing about him? If our, if our day has men like Hitler who would be all too happy to round up those they find similarly to how Hitler regarded the Jews and his political opponents as a kind of blight on the planet, as germplasm to be eradicated for the good of mankind, it is not enough to just not be worried about them. If you are putting these things in the context of the Old Testament, we have to remember that the Old Testament contained warriors and kings who fought. Yes, sometimes died, but also killed in pursuit of obedience to God. And so it cannot all be peace and harmony and no more wars with anyone on any terms, and those who got thrown in concentration camps had it coming because they were troublemakers, and they should have just stuck to the gospel 
if they knew what was good for them, that will not do. And I'm not trying to say that is what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying, that he would say no more. But I am saying that anyone who would quote Martin Lloyd-Jones to try and make a similar point in our day, that anyone who faces trouble because they get political as Christians, because they concern themselves with the business of the city as Christians, and then find themselves thrown to lions, or into a fiery furnace, or into a concentration camp, or arrested, or losing their business, or fired, or disenfranchised. It is not enough to make the negative point that sometimes life is hard, and it's harder when you're stupid, like John Wayne would say. It is not enough to say that and then imply certain untoward things about Christians who get very involved in politics. That is not sufficient, that is not careful, that is not correct. If that is what some would imply, that cannot be. That cannot be. If that is what Martin Lloyd-Jones would mean, I cannot agree. Interestingly, when he says we cannot be anti-communists to the point that we would drive communists away from hearing the gospel— Not only do I ask, what do we do with communists who say they've come to Christ and yet don't give up the communism, I would ask, are we calling them to repent of their communism? Do we regard as sin and disobedience and wickedness the core of what they hold to and are pursuing as communists? And if we don't, because we're too afraid they wouldn't become Christians, if we did— It is not just the conversionistic approach to communists we ought to be concerned about. It is the conversionistic approach to everyone we are preaching the gospel to, which we ought to reconsider. The big idea is not just to make converts any more than the big idea is to just be persecuted. One could respond in just the same way. As he says, oh, well, just because you're persecuted, that doesn't mean you're being persecuted for righteousness sake. And I would say, just because you're converting someone, that doesn't mean that you're actually converting them to Christianity, particularly if they hold their communism intact and they see nothing in the Christian message as you've delivered it to them, which would call them to repent of their communism. Have you actually preached the gospel to them? Have you actually preached the whole counsel of God to them if they think that they can be a communist and a Christian at the same time? I dare say not. What would Martin Lloyd-Jones make of the situation in our day? That I can't say, because he passed away five years before I was born. But I will say this. I came across some quotes from his commentary on Romans 13, 1 through 7, preached at Westminster Chapel in 1966 to 1967. He has an entire volume of his series on Romans, dedicated to 11 sermons preached out of Romans 13, 1 through 7. Three quotes I would like you to consider. First of all, is there only one view amongst Christians with regard to economics or any of these questions? The answer quite plainly is no. That is why I have always opposed the idea that there should be a Christian political party in this country. In some countries, you will find such parties, but that, to me, is based on a complete misunderstanding of this teaching. You cannot have a Christian political party because Christians hold different views on the economy 
and other issues. You can have equally good Christians in the conservative party, the liberal party, and the labor party. What is it that divides them? Not their Christianity, not their spiritual point of view, but their opinions with regard to specific problems in the realm of economics or drainage even, or one of these other questions that law and government have to consider. Now, I am not saying that the fact that people are Christians does not make a difference at all to their views on these matters. What I am saying is that you cannot say that there is the Christian view with regard to most of these questions that have to be considered by the powers that be. And historically, it has, of course, always been the case that Christian people have differed for one another on many of these questions without there being any reflection whatsoever upon their Christianity. A few observations. Note here, Martin Lloyd-Jones does not believe there should be Christian political parties in the UK because Christians hold different views on the economy and other issues. My question for the good reverend would be, did he also not believe Christians should congregate in separate denominations? And also, are all disagreements between professing Christians legitimate? What about disagreements regarding sexual ethics, sexual morality? What about disagreements regarding abortion? What about disagreements regarding climate change? That, depending on your point of view, verge terribly close to pantheism regarding the creation as God and God as creation. What about disagreements regarding public health policy, where public health officials will say we are going to shut down the entire economy and even the churches? Would he hold that Christians can differ on these things and all of their disagreements are equally legitimate so long as they're equally sincerely and passionately and genuinely held to? Martin Lloyd-Jones also believed Equally good Christians could and should be found in every party. And to that I would ask, did he believe a Christian could belong to the Communist Party? And again, what about if a Christian mixes in Marxism with the gospel? Moving on. And I quote, The Christian is never to expect too much from the state. This is always a difficulty. People always expect too much from it. Let me emphasize that by saying that Christians should never get too excited about the state. They should never get excited about politics. They are to be interested. They are to vote. They must be intelligent and informed, but they should never get excited about one political party or the other. But Christians often do. And to the extent that they do, they come under the condemnation of the scriptures. Page 57, by the way, of Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on Romans 13, 1 through 7. <clears throat> Some conclusions with regards to this one. Martin Lloyd-Jones maintains that Christians should have low expectations regarding civil government. Somehow he concludes this from Romans chapter 13, even though Romans 13 says that the governing authority is instituted by God as a minister of God to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil. How can the governing authority do that if the governing authority doesn't know what good and evil are? How can the governing authority reward those who do good if the governing authority is rewarding those who do evil and punishing those who do good? And is there no responsibility whatsoever for the Christian who knows the difference between good and evil, according to God's word, to educate, to inform, to correct, to instruct, to call to repentance those in the positions of authority 
like John the Baptist, called Herod to repentance for having taken his brother's wife? Is there no responsibility on the part of Christians, God's people, God's emissaries? Seemingly, the answer, according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, is no. He says they are to be interested, but it seems to me from everything else he's saying, they are to be very disinterested and very dispassionate. Don't expect too much from the state sounds like a very subtle, understated way of saying have very low expectations. Yes, be intelligent and informed, but be dispassionate. Never get excited about one political party or the other, but here's the trouble. Edmund Burke would disagree with you. Edmund Burke was in favor of political parties. How can you belong to a political party or operate within a political party if you're trying devilishly hard to not get excited about that political party and if you don't really believe that that political party's principles are quite correct? And in our day, in particular, where the Republicans in the United States of America at least are not championing abortion and the LGBTQ agenda being radically advanced in every facet of our society, being imposed on our children and our workplaces, the Democrats are doing that. Is that something that we should get excited about if one political party is saying, no, we want to reduce your taxes and lay off a lot of government employees and we want to get rid of these efforts to brainwash you and intimidate and bully and oppress you towards the end of sexual immorality and the murder of children. Is that something to get excited about if one political party is for and the other is against these things? Martin Lloyd-Jones seems not to have anticipated those kinds of questions, and I can forgive him that given that he was living in a different context, but I do wonder what he would say if he were acquainted with our particular context in large part as an extension of his context and how many Christians may have been persuaded by the force of his arguments and his example to disengage or to engage not just dispassionately, but somewhat ambivalently. They set their expectations so low that they did not try. They did not actually work hard at these things. Now, what does he mean when he says that condemnation of the scriptures is there for Christians who get excited about one political party or another? What can he possibly mean? All I can think of, and someone, feel free to chime in if you think of some other passages which pertain, which might be escaping me at the moment, is Galatians 5, 16 through 25. And I quote, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now here he says that Christians who get excited about one political party or another come under the condemnation of the Scriptures. And all I can figure is he is thinking of passages like Galatians 5, 16 through 25, and what those passages have to say about enmity, strife, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. And the trouble is, if someone is ignorant about politics and political philosophy, and they do not understand the whole idea behind having separate branches of the government and separate political parties within the government and checks and balances, they might very quickly mistake checks and balances for dissensions, rivalries, divisions, enmity, strife. The trouble is where there needs to be accountability, and our system is predicated on there being accountability, checks and balances, not unlimited power arbitrarily given to one man or one branch of government to trample on the rights of people, the interests of people, And by rights, I mean the good. Reward those who do good has to do with rights. Those who are doing what they have a right to do, what it is right for them to do, what it is good for them to do. Reward them when they do what is good for them to do. Even if rewarding them just takes the form of leaving them alone, let them do it. Get out of their way. Stop trying to make it more difficult for them. Punish those who do evil. Make it hard for them to do what is evil. Punish them for what is evil that they do. These things can't be done if one political party is evil and corrupt and claims a kind of Christianity and God's ministers say, well, so long as they claim to be Christians, I really can't touch them. I don't want to be divisive. No, we have to study to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And we have to recognize that all throughout the scriptures, we are not called to unity with false teaching and false teachers. And there is such a thing as false teaching and false teachers. We have to be able to recognize it by its fruits. And what are those fruits? Those fruits are works. Works. We are not saved by works. We are not justified by works. We are saved by grace through faith. And yet we are commanded by Christ himself to determine who are the false teachers and false prophets by their works, whether they are good trees or bad trees bearing good fruit or bad fruit. And if we are overly zealous, overly fanatical in desiring peace on any terms because we are tired of bombs being dropped across the street as we're trying to preach a sermon, then we might say, let's all just hold hands and sing Kumbaya and not debate strenuously whether God's word in any way, shape, or form makes room for the positions that we are taking on these things. Or, as a matter of fact, if we are claiming that our Christian faith supports certain proposals, we are not just bad leaders, bad candidates for representative government, We're false teachers after a fashion, blind guides after a fashion. Consider also another quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones on Romans 13, 1 through 7. 
He says, whatever your attitude to the state, you must never allow it to affect your relationship with other Christians. If your interest in the state or your view of it or your reaction to it comes between you and other Christians, you are in a wrong and false position. So often, and to their great shame, Christian people have quarreled over politics. This is quite unforgivable. Ultimately, the disagreement is caused by a false view of what the state can achieve. Otherwise, no one would get so heated. I have known churches to divide on political issues. I have known Christian people who do not even speak to one another because of their different political views. It is almost unthinkable, but it has often happened, and it is all due to understanding the teaching of this great and important section of Romans 13. It is quite all right to have difference of opinion, as I have already indicated There are equally good Christians in all political parties, but Christians must never let their political views harm their fellowship with other Christians. And I quote page 58 of his commentary on Romans chapter 13. Some observations. One, Martin Lloyd-Jones is adamantly opposed to relationships between individual Christians being negatively affected by disagreements about politics and government because, he says, They represent a false view of what can be accomplished by government and also a misunderstanding of Romans 13. Now, my pushback on this would be to say, are we to regard as fellow Christians everyone who merely claims to be a Christian? For instance, if someone says they are going to host Drag Queen Story Hour in their church or even a kind of drag queen dance party in their church, as happened in one particular church in, I believe it was New York State, in the past couple of weeks. It was an Episcopal church in New York State, I do believe. Are we to regard as Christians those who would say they're going to welcome in a man dressed up as a woman dancing before children and young adults in a very sexually immoral way, in a very arrogant, haughty, evil way, that we are going to welcome them into a church because we want to be inclusive and loving? Are we going to say that those leaders in so-called churches are Christians and that the parents and the children who cheered this move as progressive are just as good a Christians as those who blush even to talk about such a thing. When in the United States of America, in the year 2022, we are faced with such a choice between the two political parties, and Martin Lloyd-Jones would be quoted as if to imply that there is no meaningful, significant difference at all morally, spiritually, between the platforms of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, I say, I don't know how you can draw that conclusion. I don't know how you can draw that conclusion. And all the more, as Christians are convinced to stay out of all of this, will it be true that there is no meaningful difference? We all alike are being swallowed up and destroyed. Just a few verses later, in the passage the sermon from yesterday was preached out of, we read that we are the salt of the earth. 
and that salt that has lost its savor is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under men's feet. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We are supposed to let our light so shine before all men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. If we do not know the difference between good and evil, we cannot let our light so shine before all men that they might see our good works, because we're denying that there is any such thing as good works. It's friendship with the world. It's enmity with God to say that there should be no distinction, no separation whatsoever. And it completely misses the point that there are people who will say, Lord, Lord, to whom Christ will say, depart from me. I never knew you. It completely misses the point that we are warned about false teachers and false teaching. And to beware, to beware means to be aware, to pay attention. And if we love our neighbor as we love ourselves, if we are trying to build up the church, we ought to warn the church. And if we are ignored in trying to warn the church, or if we are in some measure resented for that because we're being divisive or we are dividing over politics in particular, well, then I would ask the question, are we not supposed to obey all of these things all at the same time simultaneously? Is it not a grievous error if we say that one passage of scripture cancels out so many others? Indeed. Indeed. It's very, it's very, very important that we be careful and wise and not be so focused on making converts that we are paying too little attention to the life of the mind. I just started Mark A. Knowles' The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind on my way home from work this afternoon. And it's very good so far, but he makes clear that there is a scandal with regards to the evangelical mind. We are anti-intellectual. We do not believe in the life of the mind. We take those who are trying to nurture a keen awareness of subjects besides narrowly defined the gospel as being somehow untoward or unspiritual or warped or contentious if they start disagreeing or correcting in meaningful ways that would be to our benefit. And to Martin Lloyd-Jones' point, where I would agree with him and might agree with him, depending on how he meant these things, if he actually means it the way that I would agree with, We don't need to disagree to the point that we regard one another as no longer Christians over trivial matters. And yet, it's hard to read these quotes and to hear them quoted in our day, in our context, and to consider how very consequential and very apparent, according to God's word, so many of the major differences politically There are, in the United States of America specifically, between Democrats and Republicans specifically, and how the driving away of Christians from public life is not regarded as persecution, even when those in the church are the ones doing the driving away of Christians from public life. Persecution, if you look up the word, and I'll look it up for you and I will tell you Right now, Dioko is what this app says, the literal word Bible app on my phone. Dioko means to put to flight, to drive away. That's what it means. Or to pursue, 
of persons with accusative, without hostility, to follow after, with hostile purpose, hence to persecute, metaphorically, with accusative of things, of seeking eagerly after, etc., etc. The first definition is to put to flight or to drive away. For Christians to be persecuted is for them to be driven away. What else do you call it when Christians are driven from public life and from public office and from positions in serving the public, when they are driven from the public square, when they are driven from the economy, when they are driven from positions of power, because they are Christians. What else do you call that except for persecution? You cannot say it is not persecution for righteousness sake when the reason they've been driven from those positions is because they are Christians and because they hold to what God's word says is righteousness. And it is entirely too convenient for far too many in our day in particular to say, ah, yes, life is hard. It's harder when you're stupid. You were just being obnoxious. You had it coming. You were a troublemaker. If you were a good boy like me, if you knew how to behave yourself and not make waves like me, this wouldn't have happened. That too is persecution, if in fact it was for righteousness' sake that these brothers and sisters were driven away. You are driving them away further, even within the church, because you're saying essentially to keep their testimony to themselves. And then all the while you say, ah, there's no persecution here. I don't know that there ever will be. We're so privileged. And all the while, much of it is a lot of Marxist-infused Christian conversionistic talking points, a.k.a. a lot of what comes out of mainstream evangelical American expression that is influenced and dominated by liberal theology. And even some of the voices in the movement towards liberal theology in our day, towards woke Christianity, they insist that they are conservative if they can quote the Puritans, if they can quote this or that reformed thinker, this or that hero of the Protestant Reformation. Even Satan quoted scripture, brothers. Even Satan quoted scripture. Christ responded, it is written. Are we able to respond with that without being called divisive? Are we able to respond with it is written, even if it means that somebody who claims to be a Christian and a communist at the same time, might be separated from us because maybe they are not both a Christian and a communist at the same time. Not if they have been told that they can be both of these things at the same time any more than if they were told that they can be a homosexual and a Christian all at the same time. That also, in our day, is a prevalent problem. In the interest of consistency, What is our attitude across the board? Is our attitude across the board to say, in the interest of unity, we will become Unitarians. And it doesn't really matter what specifically you believe, because everybody who says they're a Christian must be, I don't want to be called divisive. Surely not. So also, I would just push back. I would just push back when I hear that the crucifixion of Christ was not political. We have no king but Caesar is a political statement. That's a political lever. Herod sending soldiers to murder every baby boy in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, 
because he wanted to eliminate a potential rival for the throne, was entirely political. Daniel being thrown to the lion's den for praying to Yahweh God was entirely political. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace was entirely political. Saul pursuing David was entirely political. Pharaoh refusing to let the children of Israel go was entirely political. Old Testament and New Testament, God's word is not first and foremost political, but it is undeniably a political book. And if we want to deny that it's a political book, I think that we have come to the scriptures with assumptions and we are being conformed to the pattern of this world instead of being transformed by the renewing of our minds to just that extent that we are not willing to see that the ecclesia was the word for the gathered assembly of the citizens of a Greek city-state when they would get together to discuss and decide on important matters pertaining to all of the people and to the welfare of the city. We cannot miss that the word church itself is borrowed from essentially the town hall, the political gathering of the Greek city-state. There is no deny that these things are entirely political where they relate to the business of the city and groups of people making decisions together for their collective well-being, safety, security, and goodness. There is no denying that these things are political and they have to be regarded as such. And there's nothing unspiritual or ungodly about regarding them as such. It was entirely political. When Haman wanted to persecute the Jews, and yet Esther was born for such a time as this, and Haman ended up hanging from his own gallows, being sport for the crows. He was hoping we're going to feast on the Jews, whose property he would have taken, because he hated them. That was entirely political, and there's no getting around that. Now, someone could say, oh, no, it wasn't political, it was spiritual. But that's just the problem, that we don't see these things as being political and spiritual at the same time, because we've bought into the lie of secularism, that we can make this neat and tidy dividing line, where on the one side, essentially, is a kind of de facto godlessness, and on the other side, is a reverence for God, which, if anything distracts from it whatsoever, even obedience to God in all the rest of life, we will wag the finger and imply very untoward things about the sincerity of professions of faith. That is not good. That is not wise. That is not helpful. That's all the time I've got for this episode, though. I gotta run. More could be said. More will be said. This is not the end of the matter. I still have reading to do. I still have research to do. As always, thank you for listening. I will update you with more as I go. But until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.